Shandront defund the police or else. This week, the specter of provincial government overreach once again hung over council's head. The debate included Chinatown safety, transit safety, but not the police funding formula. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Municipally. Welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 180. You'll notice we're one day late. Mac and I decided this week to delay the recording of the episode because we knew that Friday morning, Council would be discussing the police funding formula, and we wanted to bring you that news. Council did not, this morning, in fact, discuss the police funding formula. So, joke's on us. Nor this afternoon, nor at lunchtime. They were not very good with their agenda management this week, Troy, but we'll get into that, I'm sure. One thing we're phenomenal at on this podcast is agenda management and Up first is the rapid fire segment. $2.3 billion worth of property tax assessments went out in the city this week, which is a lot of money to fund Amarjeet Sohi's lavish lifestyle. But just how much money is $2.3 billion? Well, that's enough for 17 billion liters of provincial gas tax, 915 football fields of $5 bills, 46,000 years of e-bike rebate funding, or about one council term of Edmonton Police Service operations. The federal government has allotted $17.5 million to invest in tourism in Alberta. Randy Boissonneau, Minister of Tourism, announced that $10 million of the funding was to be delivered to explore Edmonton because, quote, K-Days remains a key part of Edmonton's cultural tapestry, end quote, which is the biggest diss on Alberta from a liberal since the establishment of the National Energy Plan. Calgary Mayor Jyoti Gondek will have to wear an Oilers jersey in council chambers after losing a bet with Edmonton's mayor. While her team pride is certainly hurt, Calgary's mayor does not appear too distraught about her predictions, explaining, quote, Sometimes your bets are off, like right now, but we've still made some good bets with our team. Like when we bet the team would stay, even if we didn't give them cushy handouts and a heavily subsidized arena. Edmonton lost that bet. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. This episode is brought to you by Alberta Blue Cross. Even if you're a busy business owner with more meetings than hours in a day, you are calm and collected when your group benefit plan is taken care of by Alberta Blue Cross. Your employees can manage their own health, dental, life, and disability coverage online at any time on any device. Makes it easier for them and for you. To learn more and explore your options, head to ab.bluecross.ca. Mac, I noticed that the start of these topics is, oops, they did it again. Uh, Unfortunately, for copyright reasons, we cannot play Britney Spears (laughs) under the entire episode. But our listeners can imagine it as we talk about council while doing basically the same thing that they did last week. Yes, the same items were on the agenda this week at council starting on Tuesday after the long weekend. The first step was the community safety and well-being strategy. Committee discussed this at length last week. They had some questions about maybe how they should spend some of that money, which we told you about in the last episode. Namely, should $200,000 go to the public library programs or should we put it toward opioids? It turned out, though, that that wasn't the highlight of this meeting on Tuesday. Uh, What happened is, first thing Tuesday morning, council chambers are absolutely packed, full, standing room only like we haven't seen in quite some time, given the pandemic. And it was mostly people there to speak about safety and security in Chinatown. And the family of one of the men who was killed in Chinatown a couple of weeks ago was there, and another member of the community spoke on behalf of the other man's family. And normally, as our listeners will know, speakers 
aren't allowed to come and speak at council. They speak at committee or at public hearings or other special meetings, but generally not at city council. But council decided to suspend all of that and listen to a few different panels of speakers throughout the day, including, like I said, the, the members of the of the families of the, the two men that were killed in Chinatown. So they thought it was important to meet with them. They did have a motion to try and push that off that failed. Council Jans, Council Salvador, I think there was four people that voted for that, but ultimately council went ahead and heard from all those speakers. Hearing from these speakers actually put council quite behind on their objectives for this week, and they did not get everything done. But a couple things did get done during this meeting, namely that after hearing from speakers, council approved $300,000 for Chinatown safety and security. Yeah, so there was 10 actions, remember, alongside this community safety and well-being strategy. There was a motion to try and take the $200,000 from the library program and put that toward opioids, and that was defeated. So they were voting on uh, the strategy as put forward by administration with all 10 recommended actions. They approved that. And then we got this amendment from Councillor Jennifer Rice to spend $300,000. And the money for that is coming from Council's contingency fund for 2022. And the motion said that that money would go to, quote, the purpose of addressing the immediate needs of Chinatown, end quote. That's all it said. There's no detail about what exactly that money is going to go to or who's going to get that money. In the discussion about this, we heard that there's concerns about the cleanliness of Chinatown, people needing to clean up garbage and spent needles and other things like that, maybe some support for some of the businesses and things like that. So who had, you know, we've heard in, in the news recently, gone and contracted their own private security, that kind of thing. But we don't actually know what that money's going to go to. So that was one weird thing about it. We don't know what it's going to. The other weird thing about it that Councillor Paquette raised is that $300,000 is well within the purview of the city manager to approve. So if the city manager administration decided they need to spend some money to help clean up Chinatown, they could do that without this motion from council. And and Paquette said, I wouldn't be surprised if we now hear a whole bunch of councillors bringing forward $300,000 requests to do some cleanup in their own wards. Yeah, this definitely seems like a motion that is political theater motivated. You're at a meeting, and especially something like Chinatown safety and security. This is a problem decades in the making. You're not going to solve it at a single meeting of council. But darn it if councillors sure wouldn't like to feel as if they did something at the meeting, one material action that they can say, we did this on Tuesday and going forward, it's fine. And that's what this motion feels a lot like, because like you said, the city manager could approve this funding. I'm just repeating everything that you're saying. <laughs> it's true, though. This is this is one of those things that was based on the emotion of people in the room. And you've talked a lot on this podcast in the past, Troy, about I don't know how you'd say it, how unfair it is or inequitable it is that we have speakers at council in the first place because council tends to put an outsized significance on the people in the room, right? Even if they don't represent the majority of, of, of Edmontonians. We talked about a related issue last week where a group of downtown business a group of downtown business organizers got together, put on a shiny name, and suddenly has an outsized impact on council's decision making and is included directly in motions that council is making. Uh, speakers at council, like you say, have the exact same impact. If that meeting room wasn't full of people from Chinatown 
telling their stories, would we have gotten this motion? I don't think so. Would we have gotten the same outcomes? Probably, because I don't think it is lost on Edmonton City Council that there's pretty dire needs. And what has happened with the two homicides in Chinatown is shocking and top of mind for most of the councillors. But this motion was another piece of evidence that having speakers there, and in fact, having speakers there that were outside of protocol, not typically allowed to be there, as much as it sounds callous to say, I don't know that I would have voted to hear from speakers at council. Uh, I would have absolutely said, come to my office, let's have some conversations, let's have a press conference even, let's get your stories heard. But I don't know that that was the appropriate place to hear from speakers and I don't know it was the best use of council's time. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think it's hard to imagine myself in the mayor's shoes on this because it's a pretty difficult position to be in, right? I mean, the family of these two men is here. They want to speak. In fact, the mayor allowed them to speak longer than the five minutes speakers are typically allowed. So not only did they let them speak in the first place, he gave them the floor for longer than is typical in order to complete their remarks and say what they they had to say. So, you know, it would have probably been highly criticized had he not allowed it or had council as a whole voted against allowing the speakers to uh, have some time on on Tuesday. But I suppose we don't have to revisit that now because they did. They did hear from these speakers. And uh, as you say, they ran out of time to get through their entire agenda this week as a result. So a little bit of good, a little bit of bad with that decision. So that was the Community Safety and Wellbeing Strategy. It's now officially approved. I'm sure we're going to hear more about what safety and security initiatives we need to have in in Chinatown on the same day as this happened. The Edmonton Police Service announced this thing called Project Connection, which is to try and uh, beef up its efforts in Chinatown, Alberta Avenue, downtown, and along ETS. And we heard from other members of the Chinatown community who didn't get an opportunity to speak at council about their concerns about equating safety with police only in the Chinatown. There was some discussion on Twitter on Tuesday that everybody in the room were pro-police. And I don't think, listening to the speakers, that that's a fair characterization. They were not there saying we need more police. They were there saying we need to feel safe in our community. So the most immediate tangible action, as we mentioned, was this $300,000. And it turns out that was a useful thing for council to have approved, even though they didn't need to, because it's one of the headline items that they will use in response to Justice Minister Tyler Shandro's letter asking for a public safety plan. This week, Justice Minister Tyler Shandro did the equivalent of yelling on the driveway of city council, and he invoked Section 30, Subsection 1 of the Police Act, which is not something that is invoked often at all. Um, I cannot recall a time when it has been invoked in my life. But essentially what this section of the act does is it allows the minister to ask city council or the mayor on behalf of city council to put forward a plan to guarantee community safety, in this case, in downtown, in Chinatown and on the LRT. And they have a deadline of two weeks to submit that plan. And if the minister does not like that plan or is not satisfied with that plan, then the minister will essentially take control of operations of police and safety in the city of Edmonton and fund it however he sees fit. So it's pretty much a nuclear option. And this comes after Shandro was pretty publicly embarrassed at a press conference talking about Chinatown safety. Yeah, just before this letter, I think the day before this letter came out, he was 
asked about uh, Chinatown and he initially said that the two men were shot. They were in fact not shot. There were no firearms. It was blunt force trauma uh, that was deemed the cause of death for both men. And he also claimed that city council had cut $22 million from the Edmonton police budget, which is not true, not only in any reasonable interpretation of the motion that's on the table, but just for the simple fact that they have not voted on it yet. And so, you know, even if this idea of a $385 million base budget goes forward and you argue that that's a cut, hasn't been approved yet. So he was embarrassed by getting these facts wrong. The very next day takes this nuclear option, as you say. Of the Police Act, this section 30, subsection 1, essentially says if he's unhappy, he doesn't think that the city is, the municipality is providing or maintaining policing services, or if they're in violation of the act in some way, he can basically do whatever he wants or whatever he thinks is necessary to correct the situation. As I pointed out on Twitter, uh, after reading his letter, he should have just read to the next page of the Police Act, section 31, subsection 1, which talks about the police commission's responsibility. And all of the criticisms that he is leveling at city council, in fact, are the responsibility of the police commission. I would think that the justice minister would know that, but it's much more politically expedient to blame council and the mayor for this. So, of course, we've talked about at length before, it's the commission that establishes policies for policing, that issues instructions to the chief of police, that ensures that there is enough people to carry out the police activities. They are the ones that allocate the funds that council gives them. For Shander to claim that the people of Edmonton deserve better than what the city council is delivering felt to me like it was directed at the wrong place. But anyway, that's just politicking. This letter came out. Mayor Amarjeet he wasted no time in posting a response. And as you would imagine, Troy, he used that response to point out all of the lack of support that the city has received from the province and the number of times that they've asked for support on some of these issues and they're just not getting it. And of course, people on Twitter were quick to point out that many of the root causes of this crime that Tyler Shandro seems to be so concerned about have to do with provincial issues, right? Like safe injection sites and closing the safe injection sites, those kinds of things. So this is a highly political back and forth, but council and through the mayor still must respond by June 9th with a letter uh, outlining their public safety plan. On the mayor's response, one of his lines in there that I absolutely loved is, so he said, quote, I have to say that I am glad that the minister has finally noticed this incredibly important issue that has been my top priority since being elected. Uh, I want to talk a little bit. You said this was wrapped in politics. And yeah, it is. It's a very political letter to have written. If one reads between the lines on this, I have to read it as essentially a don't defund the police threat. It is the police commission's responsibility to direct police operations and to direct police actions and to allocate budgets. So if we're being charitable and assuming that Tyler Shandro understands his job portfolio, which isn't a position that's based on historical evidence, but we're being <laughs> charitable, then he has to say that the thing he is upset about with city council is their only role in this, which is handing the envelope of money. And that means they're not handing enough money. You could certainly read this letter as, I have seen the threat of police funding freezes. 
I am not happy with that. And therefore, you will increase the budgets or I will do it for you. This, of course, coupled with when there was the discussion at executive committee about Aaron Rutherford's motion last week, we had heard Chief Dale McPhee sort of allude to the threat of, do we need to get the province involved? I'm not saying he did, but maybe Dale McPhee tattled to Justice Minister Shrandro and now uh, the teachers getting involved in this situation. Councillor Hamilton essentially asked this very question during council this morning on Friday and, and, and said, you know, reading between the lines of the letter, do we think this is all of the things you've just outlined, Troy? And, and the mayor didn't seem to want to get into a political fight in public, but the city manager responded that, yeah, maybe, yeah, there could be something to that argument. I think that's what most people feel is happening here, right? This is really about police funding and a, a threat not to defund the the police or to take any money away from the police. And it was interesting at council today because the mayor and council Paquette and a number of others used the language of this is an opportunity this is an opportunity to showcase all of the great work that we are doing in Edmonton. But it was also Chief Dale McPhee today at council who used this idea of an opportunity. And at one point, uh, I think it was Councillor Paquette, you know, asked why it has taken so long. Why did all of these terrible things have to happen for police service to reallocate resources? Because they're now talking about this idea of saturation policing, more boots on the ground in Chinatown and downtown and along the LRT. Why didn't that happen sooner? And Andre Corbold, the city manager, said he doesn't really have an answer for that, just that the whole situation is highly political. Uh, but when he had an opportunity to speak about it, Chief Dale McPhee basically said, I don't think that matters anymore. He said, Chandra's letter is an opportunity to put a plan together now to get the resources needed to address all of the issues at play. So he immediately went from a question about accountability to the province is paying attention. We can get more resources now. I saw from council the same disappointing and naive and honestly, at this point, obtuse thinking that we saw back in the mask debate. You'll recall back when council was debating masks and the province put the nuclear option on the table, Bill 4, that was the law that Jason Kenney had put on the table to say municipalities can no longer create mask bylaws. Mm -hmm. It's not law. It has not passed third reading. It has not received royal assent. So every city councillor who said we need to repeal this because the province has a law on the books were wrong then and are wrong now. You saw back during the mask debate, Andrew Knack saying, well, you know, this bill for this is an opportunity. We can now submit our mask bylaw to the province for approval. And councillor, did the province even respond to that, much less give approval? I'm going to say probably no. It was ignored because they don't want mask bylaws. And what are you even doing? I see the exact same thing here. People are phrasing this as, oh, this is an opportunity to get Shandro on board with reallocating police resources to community well-being and to safe consumption sites and to decriminalization. And anyone who's thinking that hasn't been paying attention and the fact that they're wasting breath and are limited council time, even justifying that with verbalizing, I think is an astoundingly obtuse waste of our time. Absolutely. So like you said, council has until June 9th to put together this letter to essentially just 
tell the province what you're already doing. Because if we accept council's justification that like they're already doing everything that they can and they need provincial resources, this should be a pretty quick book report to shuffle together. So this public safety plan is going to have immediate 30-day actions, 60-day actions, and then this five-point action plan in addition to that. And some of the things they're going to talk about is this 300,000 they approved, their public washrooms and streetscape improvements in Chinatown, this work to clean up needles and roads and alleys, increased communications with businesses, work that's already underway around decentralization of social services, you know, all of these things that are already going in addition to the bigger, larger items like the community safety and well-being strategy, the anti-racism strategy, all that kind of stuff. But when asked about, yeah, whether or not this could be a joint submission, I think it was Councillor Jans who talked about a Team Edmonton response. What if we had council, the police service, the police commission, the fire department, EMS, like everybody saying, we've got this. We're already doing stuff for safety and security in Edmonton. The city manager was quite you know, hesitant about that, saying that there's not enough time in the two weeks to do any sort of joint response, but then reassured councillors multiple times that everything would be done in collaboration with the police commission, the police service, and other partners. So he did want to kind of have it both ways. He didn't want to officially say this letter is from the commission and city council, for example, but he also wanted to, to leave council with the impression that it was going to be fully collaborative and that they were going to be involved at every step of the way. One of the other leading refrains I noticed from the city manager during these discussions were councillors in the form of a question opining that this was politicking and that we should tell the province where their responsibilities lie and where the city responsibilities end. The city manager took great pains to say, no, you know, I don't think we should say anything in the letter other than responding to what the justice minister has asked for, which is a community safety plan. I found that a little bit frustrating. One, because the letter must come from the mayor. So why is the city manager writing it? And two, because if Jason Kenney can reject the premise of the question all year long, so too can city council. And fundamentally, like we said off the top, Shandro hasn't quite clearly read Section 31 of the Police Act. So we can say as a city council, no, this letter is wrong. Here's a plan, but also please sit down, Mr. Minister. (laughs) I agree. I think the city manager seemed awfully deferential to the province and very reluctant to step outside the lines that he he kept referring to the, the last paragraph. That's what I'm focused on. We need to respond to the last paragraph. This is the one that asks for the public safety plan within two weeks. He sort of didn't want to give any attention or thought to anything else in the letter because he feels like he's got a thing he's got to do. And I'm assuming, you know, the city manager and the mayor and whoever have received legal advice from the city's lawyers about what they can and cannot do. I'm sure he's acting in the best of intentions to try and get this to happen without, you know, the risks that could come from a more clapback response, right? But I do agree with you that the deference is a bit frustrating. At least we know the letter will be made public almost right away. The city manager essentially said that that would happen as part of their communication efforts, let's say, about all of the public safety and security initiatives that are underway. Another new word or new acronym that we heard a lot of this week was TPOs, which is just transit peace officers. But I've never heard it abbreviated that way until this morning when I heard it abbreviated that way a lot. And council debated the transit safety and security update 
and the actions that city council are going to be taking going forward. Yeah, this is the first sort of interim update since we last had this big discussion a few months ago, a couple of months ago about transit safety and security. TPOs was mentioned, as you say, about a thousand times. These are the the folks who are working in the transit system, responding to calls. We know from the report that council reviewed today that we have budgeted for 83 of these TPOs, which is quite a bit less than other municipalities. So they did a, a jurisdictional scan at the end of last year. Calgary, Ottawa, Vancouver, Montreal all have well over 100 TPOs budgeted. So there, we heard a little bit more about what we could do to boost the number of folks there. With the $22 million that was held back from the Edmonton Police Service budget, we could have hired 162 of them, Troy, uh, at least for those couple of years, because they cost about $135,000 a year each. That's for salary as well as, you know, training and materials and uh, all the other things that go into properly equipping a TPO. Administration said they have had 24 of them assigned to the most challenging LRT stations through, wait for it, yet another acronym, TCAT. This is the Transit Community Action Team, not to be confused with COT or HELP or any of the other acronyms that (laughs) came up today, Troy, when we're talking about transit security. There's way too many. I've lost patience for them all. You know, they've taken some steps to try to um, put these folks in the area of greatest need. They said in 2021, last year, they had 52,000 calls the TPOs responded to, uh, and a little over a one and a half percent of those required a call into EPS for further support. So they're dealing with an awful lot uh, uh, throughout the transit system. And that was the other big part of the update today was that not only are these folks eyes and ears on the ground, engaging with folks, responding to calls, but they're doing that in a way that requires overtime and it's taking a big toll on these folks. So there was quite a bit of discussion about what the city is doing from an occupational health and safety standpoint to make sure that these folks are safe and and not burning out. And, and Councillor Hamilton in particular had some, some questions about that and, and what administration was going to do about that. One of the shocking metrics that I heard during this discussion was that in the past six weeks, the speaker said that security guards deployed naloxone 52 times in transit facilities. So, you know, doing some simple math, that's at least a time a day, basically, of a transit security guard having to administer life-saving medication to someone who is potentially succumbing to drug poisoning or overdose, which highlights sort of the intensity of this problem, but also the ill-defined scope of this problem. When we talk about transit peace officers, you know, I think... The point of a transit peace officer is, you know, you make sure people paid their fares. Hey, you get your feet off the seats. Not this station is a supervised consumption site. Let's make sure no one dies. And yet that responsibility, that download seems to be what we're dealing with and why this is such a complex issue to solve. Of course, one of the ways that uh, council and administration have proposed solving this issue is with bylaw amendments. And the bylaw amendments proposed, Mac, they looked shockingly to me like a reintroduction of the loitering bylaw just by another name. Indeed, this is an amendment to the conduct of transit passengers bylaw. And essentially, the addition here is that no person may inappropriately or unlawfully use, interfere with the attended use of or cause damage to transit property. And then there's two subsections. And uh, the first is about 
remaining on transit property while engaging in behaviors or activities other than related to using ETS. So there's your don't loiter on our transit property. And the second one was kind of interesting to me and caught my eye, visibly using a controlled substance as defined in the Controlled Drug and Substances Act of Canada while on transit property. And that one was interesting to me because council last month approved seeking an exemption from the federal government for the Controlled Drug and Substances Act to as part of efforts to decriminalize drug use in the city. So it's kind of weird that they've sought that exemption and then at the same time administration is bringing forward this introduction of a bylaw amendment to prevent that or prohibit that. I think the previous bylaw, by the way, Troy, already said these things or had scope for these things, but evidently they feel they need to spell it out. Again, I feel like a lot of this is signaling to people watching this closely that, hey, we're doing something, we hear your concerns. I don't think it is a good idea to prevent people from loitering in ETS stations in general, because... For example, one time I was out biking and it started pouring rain. So I went into an LRT station till the rain stopped. Was I there to use ETS services? Nah. Was I in violation of this bylaw as written? It appears to me so. And yet I do not think there's an Edmontonian that thinks, you know what we should have done? We should have ticketed Troy and sent him to bylaw jail. We removed the loitering bylaw for very good reason. And I appreciate the problems here, and I appreciate that transit doesn't feel safe, and it doesn't feel safe in part because we've gotten rid of the loitering. But reintroducing the loitering bylaw does not solve these problems. Of course, we know what solves these problems. It's it's housing, it's social supports. Mac, I am getting frustrated just talking <laughs> about this. It's It's so exhausting that these problems are ostensibly solved by getting provincial help and now the provincial government is saying, you have not solved these yet, therefore we're going to increase police funding of all things. It's a very frustrating cyclical situation where it feels like we're not learning anything nor progressing. And in fact, continuing to make these questionable decisions, as, as you point out, that feel like just taking action rather than doing something meaningful. So the other one that came up in the context of transit safety and security, in addition to these bylaw amendments, is this idea of installing fare gates in LRT stations, and potentially not every LRT station, potentially only the ones they deem to be the most problematic. Well, and of course, a lot of LRT stations are not just LRT stations. They're headways to the Royal Alberta Museum, right. you know. It also will do nothing to make transit feel more safe and secure. Uh you know, I'm not imagining they're going to install big floor-to-ceiling gates and all these kinds of things to try and keep people out. Well, and you just a couple weeks ago highlighted a problem where you and your daughter were going on to Edmonton Transit and there was poop outside the door. Turnstiles aren't going to solve that. No, this is well outside the fare recovery zone, right? Absolutely. The funniest thing about turnstiles to me, though, is with the public, at least in my interactions, it is an exceptionally popular plan. And I think it's because it feels so easy uh, for someone who's using the LRT and they see someone who is houseless, who is there and is maybe using drugs. It's a very easy thing to think, well, if this person had to pay to be here, then they wouldn't be here. And therefore, my commute would be better. And that person's not wrong. If you displace the problem to somewhere you can't see it, then you 
truly cannot see the problem. I think it depends where this goes, right? Like I took the train yesterday to Century Park and then back downtown again. And when I got off the, the station at Churchill and was coming back up to street level, I passed many individuals, young men, sitting on the stairs, there's stuff out all over the place, witnessed a, another man sort of bump a, an older woman out of the way while he was trying to get around. Like you have to navigate people blocking the way. And I can see how you might feel quite uncomfortable walking through this group of individuals. They are well outside the point at which you would ask for people to have paid their transit fares. So unless we're going to be putting this you know, outside the, the entrances and closing it off to, as you pointed out, walkways or pedways to other parts of our, of our city, I don't think it's going to make any difference. I can totally see how some of the things you described could be a deterrent to using transit. It could scare people away from using transit. But interestingly, we saw this week, that may not actually be true. Yeah, buried in this report on transit safety and security was this little nugget about a survey. So administration conducted a survey last year from May to June 2021 with 400 Edmontonians who had not used transit in the past two years or had used it very infrequently. So of those 400, 364, 91% indicated that they had used transit at some point in the past. And so now they're former riders. And this was something that administration was interested in. How do we get people who used to use transit back on the trains again? How do we get them using transit again as part of their transportation? Only 1% of those people said they had stopped using transit as a result of safety or security concerns. In the list of enhancements that would maybe positively encourage them or contribute to their use of transit use, improved security was only the sixth suggestion that they made. So at the meeting today, Councillor Jans asked about this. He said, I want to make sure we're having the right conversation here. 1% of these folks said that they stopped using transit because of safety and security. So that means there are a bunch of other reasons that these former riders are no longer using transit. If we're concerned about getting our ridership back up to pre-pandemic levels, surely we need to do more than just consider safety and security. It is illuminating to see these survey results that really question our base assumptions because we've been talking about transit security for weeks on end now. It can feel like this is the dominating conversation, that this is the critical top of mind issue, but perhaps it is just one of several. Uh, and it's it's interesting to step back and actually see some data that challenges some of those assumptions that we have. Yeah, I mean, it's only 400 people. It was done over a year ago. Maybe if they did that same survey today, we would have a different result. You know, I, I think the uh, perception has changed, uh, even if the reality hasn't. That's been in the news a heck of a lot more in the last six months than it was maybe in the first part of 2021. So, you know, the survey results might look very different if they happen today. And it's not a huge sample, but it is, as you say, a little bit of data that is a good reminder to us to stop and, and think about the bigger picture here and that there are other reasons as well that people might, might not be using transit. I know this is anecdotal, but as I said, I took the train yesterday and it was around rush hour in the afternoon. And I was quite surprised actually at how many people were on the train. Like it was really full. Platforms were packed. I haven't taken the train at that time of day in, in quite some time. So I can definitely uh, anecdotally report, Troy, that there are numbers around uh, ridership returning to about 70, 75% of pre-pandemic levels appears to be true. So we've heard a lot about Chandro and Chinatown and transit safety and security this week. One thing that we didn't hear a lot about 
was the EPS funding formula, the, you know, the topic we delayed the release of this podcast for. Uh, it was supposed to be discussed this morning at 9.30, uh, but 3.30 came and went, and so did the end of the meeting, and council had not yet discussed the EPS funding formula. No, this will roll over to a future meeting. This is all about agenda management and uh, not having enough time this week after allowing uh, speakers and other things. I mean, they talked for an hour and a half today about Chandra's thing, which wasn't in- anticipated as well. So we didn't get to that. What we did get this week, however, is a blog post from the mayor all about uh, a fair and accountable funding strategy for a safe Edmonton. And he talks quite a bit in this blog post about how much money EPS currently gets. And there's two things in there that caught my eye. He said a funding formula with automatic increases does not allow council to consider police funding alongside all other budget lines in any given year. And he also said, I think it is incredibly important that council understands the value of what we pay for before locking in increases to the largest line item year over year. So to me, Troy, this was the first real clear indication that the mayor does not support the idea of reinstating a funding formula and in fact would probably support something along the lines of what Councillor Rutherford has put forward, which is a base budget and service packages from the police. I was having discussions with people this week. It was about the funding formula and about how much the EPS costs and how much we pay for it. And even with people who are in the know, who are following the news, there is a shocking amount of disagreement about what the EPS budget is. With all fairness, it's very confusing. So there was a time where we had the Traffic Safety Automated Enforcement Reserve and EPS got a transferred portion of that. When we established the EPS funding formula, we set the transfer from the taser fund, that's what uh, people like to call it, at $22.5 million. And that hasn't changed over years, even as photo radar revenues have increased and decreased and now, of course, are decreasing substantially. Why did we do that? Where in policy does it say that we're supposed to do that? When did council ever approve that as a budget transfer to the EPS? I can't find any record of it. If we have the base tax levy support of $385 million plus $22.5 from the photo radar fund, well, that's where we get to this $407 million that we've talked about in the past couple of weeks. And people think, okay, so you take the tax levy and you take the photo radar fund, you mash them together, and that's the EPS budget, $407 million. And that's what uh, the chair of the police commission was talking about when he was talking about a $22 million cut. Mac, The budget for the Edmonton Police Service is $485 million. It's nearly half a billion dollars. You can go on the open budget portal and examine that. And that's because the EPS has funding from a wide array of other sources. They've got their own fine revenues that they charge. There's fees for certain services. There's a whole eclectic mix that gets the EPS, you know, that extra close to $80 million every year that we just don't talk about. I think it is crucially important that we start talking about EPS funding and we actually start talking about it in a way that we understand what we're funding and we understand the dollar amount that we're funding. Because right now, if you send a message to your counselor and ask them what the budget for EPS is, I guarantee you, if you send it to all 13 members of city council, you're going to get a bunch of different answers. (laughs) We should totally do that, Troy. We should totally email all 13 and see what we get. I hear what you're saying. The thing is... 
385, 407, 492, I think are all true answers in a way. As you point out, that's how much they spend, the 492. 407 is effectively what they get from the city of Edmonton when you count the photo radar funding, which is made complicated. And I think the reason you didn't find a separate vote is because it's part of the funding formula. The funding formula prescribes that the base budget starting every new year is whatever we gave them last year from the tax levy plus the photo radar funding. So it gets worked into the base amount every year, which is why that 407 could be considered a true number. I think the 385 is the best number to use to discuss because it is the one that is clearly, cleanly coming from taxpayers. That's the one that we should be using to discuss year-over-year changes. It's the one that council gets to fully decide upon. The province, of course, will decide whether or not photo radar funding is going to continue. It's the tax levy requirement that is the thing we talk about in all other programs and services. So while I think, you know, you could make a case that any of those numbers is true, I think the best one to use is this $385 million that they get in taxpayer uh, funding. Of course, we'll see in the coming weeks if that is the number that we choose to use. We would have seen this morning, but... Agenda management is something that council is going to have to work on. Another thing council is going to have to work on, and we want to talk about this briefly because, by golly, Mac, I believe I said this year, and I think we said it on the podcast with Councillor Jans, that we wouldn't talk about Oliver Poole this year. Oliver mm-hmm. Poole would be fine this year. And Mac, Oliver Poole is closed. I had such high hopes, Troy, given that a couple of weeks ago the city announced that all the spray parks were open and, uh, you know, the one next to, to me over here in Alex Dakota, Alex Dakota Park is already open. My daughter's been playing in there. It's great. I thought this is going to be the year. We don't have to complain about having these things open. And then we learn that the outdoor pool season in Edmonton this year will only run July and August. So not in June as they typically open up again. And when asked why this is the case, why aren't pools opening until July 1st, the city seemed to say that there were budget decisions made in 2020 related to the pandemic and the budget amount that was going to be impacted by the pandemic that led to this decision to pools being only open for two months of the year. So I have a couple of thoughts, but I think I can sum it all in one thing, which is just is the person making this decision stupid? (laughs) And I think the answer has to be yes. And I say this because there can be the best of intentioned city bureaucrat who said, ah, you know, I got to bean count these beans and this one's got to get the cuts because budget. I can understand that decision. But this pool, Oliver Pool, is debated every year Every budget. City administration has tried several times to close it to save budgets. They've tried several times to reduce operating hours to save budgets. And every single time there's community outcry and then council says, we're not closing this pool. Several members of our current council were elected on a promise of we need these neighborhood style recreation centers to be open to think, hey, you know what? I'm going to reduce the hours of the outdoor pools, including Oliver Pool, and not give council the heads up, and this will be fine. 
is bafflingly disconnected from reality because 100% what's going to happen with this is council is going to get a billion emails about it. There's going to be mad constituents and then council is going to pass a motion to open the pools early. And then those bean counters are going to have to find their beans in another budget because they still need to have the same budget, but this pool must be open. And anyone who has half a brain and who has watched events (laughs) for the past half a decade will know that's exactly what's going to happen. And lo and behold, Amarjeet Sohi tweeted that he is going to talk to administration to get pools open. The most predictable thing has predictably happened. (laughs) You're right. That's what happened. That's the way this plays out. How to run a city 101 from Troy (laughs) Pavlik. How to start an endowment fund 101? Well, ask the Edmonton Community Foundation, who's happily bringing you this episode. The foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group, and once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by the Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with the Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. And this year's focus is on making ends meet in Edmonton. You can learn more at ecfoundation.org. Mac, I'm not going to promise what we're going to talk about next week. Maybe it'll be the police funding formula, but maybe it won't be. Who knows? Yeah, I wouldn't put my money on it. (laughs) (laughs) Not after this week. Well, we will find out next week. Until then, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking Speaking Municipally. Municipally.